Thanks, Brian. Hey, praise God. Seven new converts. That's so exciting, isn't it? That's what it's all about. Praise be to the Lord. Um, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand at this time, and ushers will bring you a Bible. We're going to read several verses from Nehemiah. So raise your hand high if you need a Bible. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 4, and we'll begin reading in verse number 6. Nehemiah chapter 4. Your bulletin says, start in 7, but I want to back up one verse because it talks about a key thing here. They're halfway done with the wall. Here it goes. So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height. So they're half done with the project. For the people had a mind to work. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Amorites, and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became angry. That's what happens when the church begins to go to work, isn't it? The enemy gets upset. Verse 8, and all of them conspired, that's what the enemy does, conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God, and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. Verse 10, then Judah said, the strength of the laborers is falling, and there is so much rubbish that we're not able to build the wall. A little bit discouraged there, weren't they? And our adversaries said, they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So the enemy is saying, we're going to kill you guys if you keep building this wall. So, verse 12, it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came that they told us ten times, which basically means over and over again, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Therefore, I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. Verse 14, and I looked and arose... And said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid. Remember the Lord, great and awesome. Isn't that right? The Lord is great and awesome. Remember that. And fight for your brethren, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your houses. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. So it was from, the time, from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction, while the other half held the spears, the shields, and the bows, and wore armor. And the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. Verse 17, those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and on the other hand held a weapon. Every one of the builders and his sword girded at his side as he built. And the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Then I said to the nobles, verse 19, the rulers and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored in the work and half of the men held the spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. And finally, the last two verses. At the same time, I also said to the people, 
Let each man and his servant stay at night in Jerusalem, that they may be our guard by night and a working party by day. So neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off their clothes, except that everyone took them off for washing. Kind of an interesting story there in the book of, uh, in the book of Nehemiah. I, I was just at Ortonville, Minnesota yesterday and uh, got back late last night. I uh, was with a bunch of men from uh, several areas, from 16 different communities, gathered together for a, a men's rally. And as I was listening to some of their stories, it was interesting to hear that just off of Easter and coming off of the high of Easter and the conversion, like you've just heard of seven people here and many people around the world that came to Christ. And be careful after a high like Easter because Satan wants to try to discourage you today if he can. And what I heard as I listened to these men yesterday was that they were, some of them were very discouraged already. Even though they had just witnessed the resurrection power and had just sang about the victory and they had recommitted their lives, some of them, to Christ just a few days prior. But some of them were, were financially in, in a real bind. One of them told about his son-in-law that was in, in prison just this last week, got put into prison. And now his daughter's in a shelter out in western Iowa. The kids are in foster care while they sort this out. And he was in tears, thinking, you know, where, where is this resurrection power right now? And then another one was telling about that, that he had slipped up and he'd had an affair. And his wife said, just no more. And so she had, was headed towards the, they're headed towards divorce. And he said, I believe in this resurrection power, but, you know, how does it work in the midst of my, my screw-ups, in the midst of where I've really blown it, and I'm really sad about it? Is there any hope for us? And, and I just uh, prayed for lots of these guys, and and I was thinking uh, about discouragement, and I already had this message in mind as I was there over the weekend sharing some of it as well with these men, and, and found that this is pretty common, that right when you've experienced the victory of God and you've affirmed it, that Satan will do his best to bring some kind of discouragement. Remember Elijah? on top of Mount Carmel and the victory over the, the, over the Baal gods and God had rained fire down from heaven and it was just an amazing thing that had happened. And yet Jezebel said, within 24 hours, you're going to be dead. And he's all depressed. Depressed after seeing God do this mighty thing. But isn't that us? That's me. I can walk away from the high of Easter and have a, a discussion with my, my wife and it can go sour or can be struggling with an employee and think, you know, don't they care how hard I work for them? Or, uh, you know, all of a sudden Satan can begin to plant in my mind, I don't know about yours, but in my mind, you know, critical remarks or thoughts of insecurity or inadequacy. I mean, he just knows how to do that. And, and so we run to our cave and we have self-pity. We begin to feel a little sorry for ourselves at times. You know, where is God in the midst of this? Well, this is what's going on with Nehemiah. I'm thinking of a book called How to Win Over Worry. It's uh, written by John Hagee. 
And he tells a story of a mother that went to visit the neighbors, and she left her five kids at home. She came back from visiting the neighbor, and the five kids were in a, in a circle in the living room. And she thought, what are they doing? And so she looked into the middle of that circle, and there were five skunks in the living room. And so she said, children, run! And they each grabbed a skunk, and they ran out of the house. <laughs> Sometimes when we're trying to uh, improve things as leaders, and we think we've got an idea as a parent of how it should go, it gets worse. Have you ever picked up a skunk? Thomas Edison was one of those great inventors, invented the light bulb, invented the phonograph, invented the microphone, invented the storage battery. But in the midst of one of those times in 1914, he was a little depressed, discouraged, because finances weren't coming in. And he was trying to get the storage battery figured out, and a big fire broke out. December 1914, a fire broke out in his shop and burned everything to the ground. But he rallied around his, his group, his workers, and he got them together, and he said, you know what? We're going to rebuild. And after telling them we're going to rebuild, he gave them all the assignments that they needed to do to start working on getting rid of the rubbish and rebuilding. And then he rolled up his jacket as a pillow, laid down on, on a table, and took a nap. In the midst of the in, insurmountable odds, he somehow was able to keep on going, and that's Nehemiah. Nehemiah, in the midst of the insurmountable odds, is able to keep it going. He's surrounded now at this point in the story. He's surrounded on the north. I think it's the Samaritans. And on the east, we've got the Amorites. And to the south, we've got the Arabs. And on the west side, we've got uh, Ashtonites. And so they're surrounded, surrounded by the enemy. And the enemy is starting to say things like, you know, we're going to kill you if you keep building. And it's Judah, notice in verse 10, it's, it's Judah who is the, that's the tribe that is promised, get this, that's the tribe that is promised that the Messiah is going to actually come through their bloodline. So you would think that they're going to be the ones that in the midst of adversity are going to think, you know, get behind me, Satan, in the name of Jesus, you know, God has a plan here and he's going to abuse us and live through us, we're his chosen people. But Judah, they're the first ones to start saying, I don't think we can do this. We're losing strength. And so as we look at our outlines this morning, the first thing that happens, the source of discouragement, the first thing that begins to happen here in our story and maybe in our lives is that we, there's a loss of strength. You begin to get tired. And it happens when the wall is halfway built, when the project is half done. Have you noticed that? Uh, when does paying for the car get kind of old? When you've got it half paid off. When you're climbing a mountain, when does it get a little bit discouraging and people say, I think I'm going to turn back about when you're halfway up? You know, when you have a project that's half done, it's, it gets tiring sometimes. And that's when Satan comes in and begins to think, you know, uh, you can't do it, can you? He starts to whisper that in your ear. And so what happens is, is that a loss of strength then leads to the second point, which is a loss of vision. And instead of seeing the wall finished and having a vision of what it might look like, and that's true in our marriages too, we lose the vision of what we're dreaming about or in our businesses, what we're, what we're thinking about or in our families. We, we lose the vision and we begin to focus on the rubbish, on the problems. 
And so that's what they're doing. They see there's lots of debris left. They got the wall half built, but oh, they're tired. They're worn out. There's debris all over the place. It's still an absolute mess. It's like that remodeling job that you may be in the midst of in your house. And it can be an absolute mess and get really discouraging with all that dust. We're doing some remodeling at one of our offices right now. And it's just, you walk in, it's depressing. Because there's just stuff pushed into rooms and in the hallways. And, and I, I walked, in, walked in last night and after coming from, back from Ortonville to see if, it was, uh, if they had made any headway. And they had. The cleaners have been in over the weekend and it's looking a lot better. I was finally encouraged. I just realized it was kind of depressing. That's what happens when you look at the rubbish and you focus on the problems rather than on, on God. And then that leads loss of strength and loss of vision. Third, leads to a loss of confidence. Here's what they said there in verse 10. We can't do it. People walk in my office many times with their marriage in, 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 in a mess and they say, we can't do this anymore. Or, or they say, we can't parent these teenagers anymore. We can't go to work anymore. We're so depressed. That's a common thing when we lose strength physically and emotionally get depressed and discouraged and we lose strength spiritually as well. And then we, we, lose, we lose sight of the vision and we lose our confidence. And then finally what they, they lose is their security. They're convinced that the enemy that they've been listening to is going to kill them. And it says that the enemy has said it 10 times, which basically means over and over and over again. The enemy is saying to them, we're going to kill you if you keep building this wall. And so the Jews, not only the tribe of Judah had gotten discouraged, but now the Jews that live near the enemy, because they heard this all the time, uh, they got really discouraged and they got afraid. You've got to be careful who you listen to. Because if you hear that negative voice out there and you begin to listen to it, too often, it's just like right now, people are like discouraged about the government or they're discouraged about their schools or they're discouraged about their, whatever, their church or whatever. You just hear all kinds of people talking doomsday. You've got to be careful of that because that's how the enemy comes in. Be careful if there's certain things that you listen to on the radio or TV. Turn it off if it gets too much. If you find yourself getting ramped up in some things that are just so full of negativism and pessimism because the Lord is not that way. It's in the midst of the debris and in the midst of the, the, the messes of life that our God is ready to do his work. He's just waiting for us to take our eyes off the impossibility situations, impossible situations, and put our eyes back on him. So for us, too, we've got to be careful that we don't lose our security. It comes from the Lord rather than from the circumstances of life. I know that's hard because sometimes we lose our houses or I deal with people that lose their marriages, that, that lose their children to drugs and all kinds of hard things. I see that segment of the population in the counseling and so it gets kind of heavy at times. But it's just a reminder. It's just a reminder though that our God, our God is the firm foundation on, on, on where we find our hope. So I just want to encourage you now as we turn to the, to the cure for discouragement. Because I, some of you may be kind of wallowing in discouragement right now. It's possible. First of all, we see that he, he gets them uh, looking at a common goal. He gets the people rallied together. So they've been all over Jerusalem and now uh, working. But now he gets them right by their houses. 
right by their families, which is a good thing. They're going to rally around their families now. They're going to protect their own families and build the wall right in front of their own property. That's a pretty, that's a pretty wise move. Because now, rather than people being scattered all over the city, they're coming together to protect their own place and to be with their own families. And their own families are going to be involved by holding the spears and the swords while the workers are working. And so we need, if we're discouraged, we need to get a common goal again. As a church, as individuals, as families, as communities. That's what we're doing yesterday with these guys. We were rallying them together around the common goal of Jesus. We had Methodist and Lutheran and Presbyterian and Nazarene and Baptist. It was just really fun. And they laid aside their differences in terms of their different backgrounds. And they said, you know, we've got to come together and show this, this community some kind of unity in Jesus. And so that was their first step to kind of think about how do we, how do, we do that? And so think about your family. Sometimes in our counseling, we just get families to, to do a project together. Sometimes I'll say to the therapist, if you can't, the home-based therapist and the family is just total chaos, I'll say, maybe try cooking a meal together at your next two-hour session. Arrange it around a meal. Oh. And so then they get everybody involved, and they just have a great time. Or maybe have a game of Uno or a game of something. You know, do something that, that gets everybody involved and where there's buy-in to the family again. Drop the criticism. Drop the stuff that's not working for a while. Experiment with rallying together around a common goal. That's what we do at work, right? Uh, guys, you have to get, you know, reestablished around a, a new goal, a new, a new motivation for the people. We need to do that in our homes, with our marriages, with our kids, with our neighbors. Second thing he did then was he drew their attention for the cure of discouragement now, drew their attention back to the Lord. And he said, look how awesome God is. Oh, we've got to remember that. <laughs> when you get your eyes off the rubbish, you think, wow, we have an awesome God. Look, he went to the cross for us. He died that we might be born again. He's, the, he's the, in charge of the heavens. He's in charge of the depths of the sea, says Psalm 95. And he's the maker of you and me, says that same psalm. And so what do we have to worry about? Well, we we think we have plenty to worry about, but when you begin to think about the awesomeness of God and the fact that he has conquered even death and that he has promised never to leave us alone, has promised that our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, if we ask him to be our Savior, So really, really, can't he and doesn't he take even the hardest problems that we face and turn them into something that works out for good? That's hard when somebody's in jail, like this guy I was talking with. It's hard when his daughter is in a shelter. It's hard when his grandkids are not reachable for him right now. But we had a prayer And he said, you know, that's where the hope is at, isn't it? I said, do you think so? And he said, I know so. Do you know that? That whatever you're facing into right now, that uh, the awesomeness of God is your hope. The power of God, the forgiveness of God, the grace of God. And then third, after he reminded them of that, of that so key point, he, he then got them back to work. He called them to action. And he said, here's the way we're going to do it. Some of you are going to have the the, uh, weapons, and some of you are going to do the work. So we call that the building and the battling (laughs) that goes on at the same time. 
And that, that's true in our lives. We have the spiritual warfare. And so we've got to be, on the one hand, battling. Somebody's got to be paying attention to spiritual warfare because Satan is trying to discourage us, the sand ballots of this world and the Tobias of this world, are trying to whisper lies in our ears to discourage our marriages, to discourage our families, to discourage us as persons. So we need some of us to be praying against that and others of us to be continuing the building. We don't want to just have people obsessed with the enemy and just, uh, you know, so, so just focused over here that nothing else happens. We don't want people over here building without realizing that, hey, the enemy is at work. We need a balance. We need to maintain a balance between building and battling so that you know where the enemy's at and you know what, what he's up to, trying to discourage you. And so you come against that with, uh, with the powers of the gospel and with prayer, and you continue to do the project that God has for you, and it works beautifully. And then he has this rallying point. I like it. He has the, the trumpet blow every once in a while while they're out working. And he'll blow the trumpet, and everybody has to run to that spot wherever the trumpet's at. It's kind of an interesting uh, thing. So they all run over wherever it's at, and they rally around. And that's so key, isn't it, to have a rallying point? I mean, they, the football players do it in the huddle. They, they huddle before they do their thing. You know, we have our prayer gatherings. We do that before we move into ministry opportunities. We, as families, how do you do that? Does your family have a rallying point? We, we used to call that the family altar, you know. Whatever name you want to put there, but uh, where, where, when do you do that? And as a church, when is that for you? Uh, hey, look at that. <laughs> when you rally together, the light comes on. <laughs> and then it goes back down. <laughs> Every once in a while, there's, a, there's the, the light of God in the midst of our depression. <laughs> but we rally together, and we, uh, we find that uh, there's strength in numbers. There's strength in worship. That's what this is today. This is a rallying point for the week. So you rally together as the body of Christ so that you are taught and encouraged and you worship God. You meet God in prayer here and in worship. You meet God in each other as you share and pray. And then you go out to do the work uh, that God has called you to do throughout the week. It's so key, so key that we have that, that point of, of rallying together. What, what I find that God does for me is that he brings uh, people along the way that I need to fellowship with. I need them in my lives. And this is biblical, because look at Elijah when he was discouraged after Mount Carmel. Jezebel's going to kill him. God gives him some rest, gives him some food, lets him sleep a little bit. And then he gets Elisha involved. And Elisha then comes along to be the one that encourages Elijah. And then David, when David was being chased by Saul, and he's getting discouraged. Then Jonathan comes along. God puts Jonathan in David's life, and Jonathan helps David move forward and make it through some very difficult times. So do you have somebody like that, that, that you're, that's your rallying person, the person you rally around, that prayer partner, that support group, that small group? If not, find one. Find a group and find it quickly, because I find that in those groups and in those rallying persons that God puts in our lives, I find my hope and my strength in the Lord, but also in who the Lord puts in my life. Do you have one of those people? 
and they'll help you. I had one, one, one time that came to me with some hard things, some hard things. He said, Dan, I really appreciate you. This was about five years into my ministry. And I realized that it was my ministry and not Jesus's. Because he said to me, he said, Dan, you're too full of yourself. And he was able to say that to me and changed my life because he cared about me. Do you have people that you'll let in that way? That will let you, that will tell you, that you'll let them tell you something that God wants you to hear? As well as encouraging things, it can be also a time of just self-examination. We need those rallying points where we have people that can help us. And then finally, he uh, got people serving each other. It says that they actually served um, they had a servant along with them, and they would go into Jerusalem and they'd stay overnight, and they would uh, do the building and the battling. They didn't even sleep much during those 52 days. They didn't take their clothes off other than just to wash up. So they were, they were that into serving one another and helping each other in the midst of this discouraging time when the enemy was bringing all kinds of accusations against them. I find that the greatest power we can do when we're a little depressed and a little discouraged is to just begin to serve somebody else in the midst of our situation. The Manager Foundation, the guy that wrote the book, you know, Whatever Became a Sin, psychiatrist, his clinic in Kansas, he said that 80%, this was a big figure, he said 80% of the people in the psychiatric ward could walk out the next day if they would go across the tracks, go to the other side of town, and serve somebody less fortunate than themselves. Now, some of mental health is not that. It's biological stuff and it's chemical stuff and it needs medication. But the majority, he said, was that we become so self-absorbed and so focused on our own problems and, and get so discouraged. And, and the healing is when we begin to serve others. We begin to give ourselves away. We begin to find our purpose in life. God has put us here to outserve one another and to help people that are struggling when the wall is half built and they're wondering, what's next? And so I encourage you to find somebody, look around, find somebody that you're going to serve even in this group of people this week. Maybe you're going to send a card, maybe you're going to give a phone call, give an email, you know, do a Twitter, do a Facebook, do something, you know, where you do a connection with somebody and bring some encouragement into their lives and see what it does for you as well as see what it might do for others. Let us pray. God, I thank you that uh, you have a remedy for us in the midst of, uh, of discouragement and that we can trust that you are going to work your will and your way in our situations. And so I pray right now that there may be somebody that's experiencing, Lord, just uh, a new hope because they're, they're facing into something that's really discouraging. And they're wondering, why is this? And Lord, I pray that just some of these thoughts just even one of these thoughts maybe might be helpful for somebody. And Lord, if there's someone that hasn't made a commitment to you, remind them that this is the most important first step to say, Jesus, without you, I guess I'd, I'm not even saved. Without you, I don't have this hope that's been talked about. And I invite you today, Jesus, to be my Lord and my Savior. If that's you, do that now. And if you're a Christian, and most of us are, but been a little discouraged, give that over to God now and say, God, do your work in this thing.